Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Season 2 of the Pop Anime Comics Lounge. I have with me comic writer and the chief creator officer and editor-in-chief of IDW, Chris Ryle. So thank you for being on the podcast. Happy to be here. Now, before we get into comics and talk about your career, I'm really curious, since you've been involved in the industry for so long and are at such a high level, how did you initially get involved in comics? Well, it's funny. Professionally, my first job in comics was as editor-in-chief at IDW. So when I do these panels at conventions and people talk about how to break in and ask these questions, I go, well, just start as the editor-in-chief. That's all you got to do. But of course, it's more complicated than that. Like past jobs, I was a copywriter. I was doing other kinds of writing, but it was never anything that I was all that enthused about. So I started writing comic reviews just online on the side just as a way to do something more creative. And through that and through a few other weird circumstances, I got to know not only a bunch of comic creators, but then filmmaker and now, you know, big podcaster and TV director Kevin Smith and ended up going to work for him. And through the job with him is where I met even more people. And that's what led me to IDW, primarily with Steve Niles. Steve Niles was IDW's big writer at the time on most of the horror books that they were doing. And we got to know each other. He called up one day and asked if I would have any interest in the IDW editor-in-chief job. And I said, you know, I never really thought about it. I thought about writing comics. I never knew how to go about breaking into the publisher side of things. So I came down and talked to them and it just worked out. And the funny thing about the timing of it all is it worked out right at the same time that Kevin offered me a position running his comic store that he was opening in Westwood in Los Angeles. So it was like the coin toss of, do I want to be a comic retailer? Or do I want to go on to the publishing side? So that was almost 13 years ago and i'm very happy with the way it's all turned out before we get too ahead of ourselves i'm very curious what titles were you reading in the comic world before you really got involved in the industry i mean i got started early on like four or five years old my older brother was a comic collector and so i primarily read marvels all through my early years and then got into dc along the way and then that led me to some more indie stuff i was reading early on when companies like first comics and some of the early 80s more direct market companies sprung up and then from there it just exploded outward so I've been a Marvel guy my whole life but I've liked a lot of everything my first comic I ever read was Fantastic Four so that one's always held a special place but I read a giant assortment of comics and graphic novels from all levels you know people have stapled their own stuff together to the big two and, and beyond so I've just always loved comics and now it's fun to be able to contribute from this side of things and before you came to IDW, you were working with Kevin Smith on his movie PoopShoots.com from Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. What was it like and what type of pressure, if there was any, working for that website with the movie and how awesome was it to work on that? Well, the weird thing is I got involved on that site right after the movie. So movie Poop Shoot was basically an Ain't It Cool News knockoff in Jay and Silent Bob movie. And then after the fact, which is when he and I got to know each other a little bit, we got to talking and he said, hey, you know, I've got this website name that I really like. People seem to respond to it well in the movie, but I want to turn it from this goofy parody thing into a legitimate pop culture site. So part of me was like, well, if you want a legitimate pop culture news site, maybe don't call it movie Poop Shoot. But that's kind of Kevin's sense of humor, and he really liked the name and the cachet that it had for the movie. And so I brought in some friends and just jumped into it, and, and we worked really hard to try to turn it into a legitimate place that offered movie news and commentary and also comics and TV. He said he wanted Newsarama meets Variety, a one-stop place that would give him everything he's into. And it launched pretty nicely out of the gate and just grew from there. It did take some time, especially with publicists who are very cautious about the way their movies and their talent are regarded, to tell them that I 
wanted to cover them on a place called Movie Poop Shoot because they didn't know what it was. They assumed something a bit more scatological, and so it, it takes a little time to establish yourself, but I think we put together a nice little run there. And obviously this led to your role in IDW. How did you go about transitioning from being the editor-in-chief and really being the driving force behind Movie Poop Shoot to coming into IDW as the editor-in-chief? I stayed with both for a while. I started Movie Poop Shoot in 2002, and I joined IDW in summer of 2004, and the website, I stayed on there for another six months until the work became just too all-consuming. So I gave up that one, but the Movie Poop Shoot thing actually probably prepped me more for the demands at IDW than any other legitimate job that I had. I'd been a corporate speechwriter and worked in advertising, worked in marketing, things like that, but being the editor-in-chief at Movie Poop Shoot, where I was putting new content up every single day and hitting these constant deadlines, plus hiring a lot of talent, that was all really good background that served me well coming into IDW. At the same time, I'll admit I had zero clue what I was doing at IDW. I didn't know how to edit comics, let alone be editor-in-chief and manage a bunch of different books and people, but you kind of learn by doing. So I reached out to Joe Casada at Marvel, and one of the person who'd been in the business a while, I've been editor-in-chief, and I just asked them a couple of questions, what I could expect, what sort of things to look out for, and they gave me a couple words that were helpful and jumped right into it. And now at the time, IDW had a few titles. How did you go about familiarizing yourself with how the company operates and the titles that you were working on as editor, as well as managing every little aspect of every other book? I read IDW stuff before I ever got to know anybody there or got to work there. I picked up 30 Days a Night off the shelves just because it looked interesting to me and I had no idea what it was. And that was a point where I was reading a lot of different things. So I was familiar with the company from that book, but I had no clue about them. They didn't seem to really have any kind of public persona or personality, really. As a Marvel kid, you grew up with Stan Lee and all the other editors there, making all the readers feel like they're part of a clubhouse. So that was one of the things that I did when I came in there. Is I thought, well, I want to try to give this company some kind of identity. I know they do these horror titles, but I didn't know anything else about them. And I figured, well, maybe there's a lot of other people that are the same. They heard about 30 Days of Night from Wizard Magazine or whatever else, but they didn't know what the company was really all about. So I spent that first couple years really trying to help them define and establish an identity. And that identity at first was primarily horror titles with a couple licensed things, a little dabbling here and there like CSI. But it was when we got the Transformers license in 2005 that things completely took a turn from where it was and then became something vastly different and got on a lot more people's radar just because of that. And now before we get into the Transformers license, which everybody loves Transformers, otherwise you're not welcome on the podcast, I want to talk about one of the titles that you initially edited, which was the Angel series. And that kind of stuck with you for several years. How do you feel that you were the editor on that and then you grew with that book? Yeah, I got in there right at the start. I think launched right after I joined. But the original creative team was put together by Jeff Marriott. And conveniently enough, the writer on the Angel book was Jeff Marriott. So it was Jeff, who was not only a big fan of the show, but he does a lot of licensed tie-in novels. So he was a good guy to launch the book. And that's where I met artist David Messino. So I've been associated with and been friendly with David now for well over 12 years. So Jeff put the team together and got it going. And we did some good things at the start. I got Peter David to work on a book and I'd always been a fan of Peter's and that's one of the joys of the job is being able to reach out to these people whose work you've always liked and then getting to work with them directly on things. But I feel like Angel really reached its peak when Brian Lynch, who was not only a friend of Kevin's from back in the day, but he was a guy that I worked with a bit on Movie Poop Shoot. And Brian had since moved to Hollywood to do some screenwriting 
screenwriting. He told me he was a big Angel fan, and so we started doing some books together. First, some Spike miniseries, and then really took off when Joss got a hold of Brian's stuff, and I really want to do the season six comic with you guys. So the entire time of doing Angel and the related titles with Brian, and then artist Franco Uru, that remains just one of the all-time highlights I've had working at IDW. It was just such a fun, invigorating time working with those guys. I miss working with them constantly. I certainly miss Franco. You know, Franco passed away about three, four years ago, and that was sad because I really love the two of those guys, and they did some great stuff on those books. And obviously, you were speaking about Angel, but also Spike, and you've had a long reign with that book. How do you feel with both of these comics, considering you've worked on them as editor for years, you helped to shape them? Funny thing was, once we stopped doing the books and the license went back to Dark Horse, I would flip through the books just to torture myself. But also, it was fun. In the letters pages for like a year, they would run letters saying, ah, this stuff's not as good as IDW's. I really wish IDW was still doing it. I thought it was curious and kind of admirable that they'd run those letters. It was nice hearing from fans over the years and certainly while we were doing those books I've never seen a fan base that was as rabid and vocal and supportive of everything we were doing they weren't really comic readers a lot of the Angel and Buffy fans they were just people that wanted Angel and Buffy content so they were really supportive and just into what we were doing and it was a really fun time that was one of my favorite books that I've worked on is the stuff with Brian and Franco and now to change gears after editing for a few years you actually got to write and one of your first things that you wrote was Shaun of the Dead with Simon Pegg and Edgar right what was it like writing your first comic and be working with Simon Pegg on it. It was funny. So my very first paid comic writing work was a kill fee from Marvel from a couple years before I joined IDW when they started this epic line of comics where they were trying to reach out to people who are comic industry adjacent, bring in new talent. So I was hired there to write a couple things. They never got published. And so they paid kill fees. And I go, well, that wasn't the most glorious way to jump into being a comic writer. So it was fun when Shaun of the Dead came about. And that was really early on in my time at IDW. That was probably early 2000. When I did that, I'd written some scripts before, like I said, those ones that were never published by Marvel, but I didn't really have the proper sense of how best to write for an artist because my artist on Shaun of the Dead was Zach Howard, and there were times when... I would write a page and I'd have multiple actions in the same panel, just writing more screenplay style. And he'd go, well, wait a second. You know, you can't have one panel where a guy walks into a room, sits down and opens a beer or something like that. One panel is one action and that's it. And so I kind of drove him crazy, at least on the first issue, until I got a little better at slowing things sequentially on the page. And how much involvement was Simon Pegg in all of this? Simon wasn't really involved at that point, but I went and met with Edgar early on to talk about the comic and everything. And he was really into it and so my experience with Simon on that was Simon seeing the artwork and going man this stuff looks great and I think he got a couple pages but other than page one of issue one which I got from Zach just because really one of the first page of the first comic I ever got published I think Edgar bought every other page from Zach so both guys were really supportive and really just into what we were doing and also around this time, you started to work with Ashley Wood, who you've continuously worked with throughout your entire career to really help get Doomed Magazine off the ground. And you were nominated for an Eisner Award for one of your stories. How did all this come about and how did that affect you as a writer? Ash really wasn't getting too much work elsewhere. I think he did an X-Men annual with Joe Casey, like one of those that was formatted horizontally instead of vertically, and did Hellspawn or other things like that. The stuff that he really wanted to do, his own stuff, he couldn't get published. And so Ted Adams, who's one of the founders of IDW, was friends with Ash and started publishing him. And he was doing the flashback scenes on the CSI comic, but he really wanted to do other kinds of stuff. And he and I and Ted, all three, were big fans of Creepy and Eerie magazine. So we talked about ways of doing 
some kind of a throwback to that. So that's where Doom came about, was taking stories by guys like Richard Matheson and all kinds of other authors and doing a very much a creepy or eerie kind of tribute thing. I think that was about the first thing I ever worked together directly with Ash on. And after that, he said, let's do a comic together. Let's do some series together. What do you want to do? So I like drawing robots. And I like drawing zombies. Let's do that. So that was the most basic, simple origin of Zombies vs. Robots. We might as well talk about it right now. So when did that all occur, Zombies vs. Robots? That was probably also late 2005, early 2006. Ash lives in Australia, but he was out visiting, and we were just talking about what he might want to do next, and that's when he said, you know, give me something with zombies and robots in it. I thought, what's the most ridiculous kind of premise you can do here? Which to me was, zombies need human brains to survive. Robots have no brains. Like, that seems like a good, ridiculous starting point for something let's just see where that can go and see if we can do something completely different than a normal zombie or robot story with it and you know anything ash draws becomes something very unique and singular into itself it came out of the gate pretty big ash is just a big following in the comic side of things but also he started making robot toys at that point and it just took off from there and there was a sequel to this comic, Zombies vs. Robots vs. Amazons. That was basically Ash going, you know, the first comic was fun, but it was missing girls. Put girls in the next one. Every series I've done with him has been that same thing. Ash going, here's what I want to draw, and then me finding a way to uh, contrive some story around that. So it technically didn't make any real sense. We essentially blew up the world in the first two issues. So what you do from there is then you bring in Amazons and push it into even more ridiculous areas. And now to talk about something that we just alluded to a few minutes ago which is transformers came in at the end of 2005 really took off in 2006 and has found a permanent home at idw since and the movies have come out how did all that occur and what was your role in really helping to develop that property at the start of it i would say i was the key person that really got hasbro to take a chance on us because at that point i'd gone out to hasbro like they opened up the field they said you know we're taking bids on a new transformers comic after dreamwave stopped so we we went out there and presented to them and there's a lot of people in the room that were like well who are you guys like why would we take you seriously when we've got publishers who have been in business for decades also bidding on this business we were this sort of weird little upstart in the room and i think that was actually what over time when the pitch process won them over was some of the other bigger publishers who were bidding on the business owned their own characters and properties and we sort of made the case that look we don't own something like a spider-man or a batman so if you guys come to us you're going to be the biggest thing that we do we're going to put every bit of talent and resources behind this and make this something really big and special not treat it like just another thing that's under the stable of a company that's publishing 70 or 80 books a month and I think that was initially what won them over was just the idea that they were going to get that level of prominence from us and your license title published by somebody like a Marvel or DC you're never going to get the same level of creator talent that the company owned characters are going to get and so in this case we were able to just really sell them on the fact that we were going to make them the biggest thing that we'd ever done to that point. I think it certainly helped having somebody like Simon Furman on board to write the book too because Simon at that point was already a fan favorite among those fans and while you were pitching was there any hint that a movie was coming out or were you aware that Transformers the movie would be coming out and then the anime series eventually would be revived and all of everything that would occur with that there were whispers I mean there were no confirmed dates there was no Michael Bay attached to it but there was just sort of scuttlebutt that Hasbro was looking to develop Transformers as a movie so that's when we thought this makes a lot of sense 
sense. It's going to make a lot of sense as a comic now, and the fan base is only going to grow bigger if that comes to pass. So we thought it was worth taking a shot at something like that and hoping it came to be. And luckily, you know, in 2007, it did. And that was nice because it allowed us to not only do the old Generation 1 stuff for the hardcore fans, but then also do movie comics that were aimed at new fans and people that were just coming to Transformers because of the movies. That also allowed me, you know, write Transformers for the first time because I got to work with Simon and then Don Figueroa on some movie-related comics. And being that the Transformers is licensed, how much freedom do you have in determining where the story goes and how much involvement is Hasbro involved with with that entire project? And how does your interaction work with them? Everything is sent to them for approval, but it's been much more of a partnership kind of situation than it has license or licensee. They've, from the very start, been really encouraging and open to just about everything we've ever wanted to do. There's very few things that we've pushed for that haven't gotten through, which is great because, you know, when I was a kid, licensed comics were the kind of thing that companies did to sell toys. Hasbro in the 80s would call Marvel and say, hey, we're launching this G.I. Joe toy next month. We want that character to show up in the comics and help us sell toys. And the point we got in with Hasbro, they just said, tell good stories. It's going to enhance the brand entirely if you just tell good stories with these characters. We're not going to be heavy handed on you in that regard. We're not going to force characters or toys or anything like that on your stories. We just want you to tell good stories and keep people intrigued and entertained that way and that's going to benefit the brand as a whole and so we've reached a point now like I don't know if you saw the book we did last year with Tom Scioli that Transformers versus G.I. Joe book but I can't imagine that a licensed comic would ever look like that it's got the most indie aesthetic of probably any licensed comic in history and just the fact that Hasbro allowed that just really shows that they're up for anything that's fun and just enhances the brand overall and is not anything where they're taking a heavy hand or limiting anything we want to do and now before we leave the Marvel world of transformers i just want to give everybody a sense of what's been done so far you've done ignition beast war generations evolution stormbringer spotlight escalation to just name a few and i believe that only gets us to 2009 we're never wants to sit back and sort of dabble at things when we jump in to do something we jump in in a big way so with transformers we tried a lot of different things from the start and like when anything's new you sort of find your way and find out what the fans are really going to respond to so that first series we did infiltration was the whole point was to try to give the Transformers back some mystique so it wasn't just giant robots punching each other but it was really playing up the idea of robots in disguise you know the fact that cars driving by you on the street could actually be these sentient alien beings okay we'll be subtle about it we'll take the ultimate Spider-Man route where he didn't get into his costume for six issues and we'll allude to and and show these cars but not necessarily show giant robots fighting right from the start because that's what Dreamweight had been doing and then there were all these fans going where the hell are the robots so we thought okay well maybe they don't want subtlety. Maybe subtlety isn't exactly what you're looking for in a Transformers comic. So the next thing we did, and we did Stormbringer, was to really do a lot of robots fighting back on Cybertron and give fans more of what they had been used to seeing. And then along the way, tried different things. We've done things set in the past. We did the Evolution series where the original goal was to reach out to big creators who had maybe never done Transformers before and never wanted to bother with 30 years of continuity but just wanted to tell a fun story. And like I say, you try these different things and see what the fans are going to respond to, which is why 10 years into this, the last couple years of doing comics with John Barber and James Roberts, you know, writing those books, I think the fan response has been stronger and more passionately vocal than I've ever seen, which is great. 10 years in to still be able to captivate fans that way is really exciting to me. And now I want to unfortunately leave the world of Transformers and dive into several other properties you helped to develop, starting with Star Trek and the several crossovers, including the Legion of Superheroes and Green Lantern. How did these come about and what was it like working 
on Star Trek as well as working with DC on the crossovers. It's funny, to me, Star Trek always seems like a comic book proving ground for publishers. They've been in so many people's hands from Gold Key to Marvel to DC, back to Marvel, back to DC and onward. And so when Star Trek license was up, I've always been a big fan of the property in multiple iterations. And so that was one that I was very happy we could bring here. And then that first crossover was interesting. We got talking about different things we could do. And the Star Trek people really, they keep us honest. They like the idea of crossovers, but only if they make sense within the confines of that universe and isn't anything tonally too crazy. They wouldn't allow a Deadpool crossover, you know, because it just doesn't make sense to the tone of Star Trek. So when we were talking to DC about doing something, the question was, what's going to work? And Justice League didn't make much sense because they're primarily Earthbound. Star Trek's in the future. And okay, Legion of Superheroes in the future. We can work with that. They both have time travel devices within those properties. And so that one just made sense for all sides. It was a lot of fun. I'm a kid who grew up on crossovers. So it's been a blast to be able to do those kind of things with people like them and Marvel. And you also worked on other things, including Godzilla. What was it like playing with this reptile? Another one that's like getting to work on these childhood favorites. Godzilla was a thing I remember reading back as a kid at Marvel. And it was much goofier. There's the issue where Godzilla's walking around in a trench coat and hat trying to disguise himself or some nonsense like that. So it's fun to take these things that you remember fondly as a kid and then find new ways to try to interest people now. I think that's one thing that's been a nice benefit to me is just that I've read the stuff my entire life. So you get a pretty good sense of either what's worked for people or what's worked for me personally and then what's already been done. So you can try to do something new that fans haven't seen before. And if I remember when I was reading it, and if I remember correctly, it had more of a Japanese type feel to it. We've done different series there too. So the first one with Eric Powell was just kind of a big monster movie sort of thing. We did a book with Dwayne Straczynski where he made it kind of just like the action movie version. James Stokoe did the Half Century War book, which was very much influenced by the movies and intended to feel like those movies. And then Rulers of Earth with Chris Mowry and Matt Frank. Those guys are both longtime guns Godzilla fanatic, so they brought in every possible movie-related thing that they could get away with. And then you also worked on a Doctor Who crossover. You worked on HBO's True Blood comic, as well as Back to the Future, 2080 Judge Dredd, to name a few that you really helped to develop. What was the story behind these and really going into some movies and going into some comics that date back to British heritage? The Doctor Who thing I was really proud of because not only did we do the first ever Doctor Who crossover, like they've never allowed crossovers in novels or in any format before. So the fact that they let us do something in the comics was a lot of fun. And then the fact that we got to do the series where a lot of the different Doctors appeared alongside each other. Another thing that they rarely ever go for was also the thrill. So again, Doctor Who and Judd Dredd, there were a lot of those British properties that I read when I was a kid that I was always a big fan of. And so it's great to be able to bring those things here and give your own spin on what you would want it to be. And now IDW are licensing another big property, which is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which has had many comics as well as it had a crossover with Batman. What was that like for you to be involved with that project and really making that kind of happen? Turtles has been a blast because we're doing it with Kevin Eastman. To get to work with a creator on a property like that is something special beyond just licensing the characters themselves. But Kevin, who created the thing with Peter Laird, had been out of the fold for a while 
and we reached him at a point when he was really excited about coming back and doing no turtle stuff and I think every interview he does now he says that he's having more fun than he ever had so just getting to work with him getting to know him personally he's one of the most enthusiastic encouraging and creative people I've ever met in the business and so that part in itself is great and then getting able to do so many different things with the turtles the animated stuff and the new ongoing series that I personally feel is among the very best superhero comics being published today if not the best and then certainly the crossovers with DC doing the Batman the regular universe and now we're doing the animated universe version and crossovers are always just the most fun because you get to play in all these different worlds and all these different characters in unique ways these are just some of the licensed products that IDW has in their arsenal how do you feel that since your tenure of coming in in 2004 that you've really helped to expand IDW and bring them to being I believe they're the fourth largest comic company currently I certainly would never say I did this stuff without a great team of people around me but I think all of us together have really made efforts since those early days of doing horror comics to push the company into all kinds of different areas we've for the most part stayed away from things like superhero books because Marvel and DC have that shorn up so well but it's always been important to me and to Ted the CEO and other people there to make the company something that offers if you want anything in comics that's not a superhero book we've got something for you we've got these old strip books and artist editions and things like that that present old classic material in these nice archival formats we've got licensed comics we do a lot of nice greater own comics novel adaptations anything like that that you might want to see in this format or this form we pride ourselves in offering and then the last few years too it's been important to us to try to expand the audience of comics comics for the most part especially in the superhero side of things are aimed so much at the existing reader that there's not as big a push to develop the next generation of comic fans and so doing things like my little pony and the disney titles and so many other all ages things that we've done and getting those into the mass market in unique ways like that's always been a big goal of ours too to make sure that we're developing that next generation of fans and not just preaching to the converted and to talk about another great crossover which is mars attack that was at least our most lunatic crossover yeah mars attack is just a completely over-the-top ridiculous property in itself and so bringing the mars attacks aliens in to fight with and kill or get killed by some of the characters that we already been publishing was a lot of fun even bringing kiss into things and the kiss story that i wrote involving the mars attacks characters you know was very much just a tribute to the old kiss comic from the 70s that i first read as a little kid and so just getting to pay homage to the stuff that engaged you in the first place in comics is always a lot of fun and what was it like working on a kiss comic and really working with that property i grew up my older brother gave me two things it was love of comics and a love of kiss and so kiss was that childhood band that i always listened to and you can see how they go together when you're a little kid you look at kiss and they look like superheroes and they show up in a comic book and blur those lines even more so then finally getting to work with the band directly and getting to know those guys my whole goal is keep doing things that impress 10 year old me and so that one certainly would have like getting to know Gene Simmons on a personal level was interesting and fun. And Gene Simmons is very well known and the rest of KISS is extremely well known. How much freedom did you have and how much involvement were they involved with with the comic? Freedom, I'd say absolute. Like they just said, make KISS comics, make us do cool things and make us look good. That was about the extent of it. As far as the stories and even the art, they were encouraging and never limiting on anything. The only thing we ever ran into that was any kind of a situation was we did a series aimed at more of an all-ages thing. We wanted KISS fans who have interest 
introduced their kids to the band to have a comic that they could share with them. So we did a comic called Kiss Kids, where it was basically just a ton of kiss in jokes aimed at younger readers and their parents who were both into kiss. And the child, Paul Stanley, in the comic, Paul was very involved in designing his hair, making sure the hair looked right. And so Paul's not really the comic book guy in the group. That's more Gene's thing. And so Paul just stays out of the way. But in this case, he sat down at the table and sketched out how his hair should look and got really involved in it, which is very amusing. And now another comic that you created is called Infestation, which pairs the Transformers, Star Trek, Ghostbusters, and G.I. Joe with your Zombies vs. Robots series. What was it like playing with this sandbox and with all these licensed products and including all of them and having just this crazy comic story? Well, the first thing it did was it showed me how much easier it is to do crossovers when you own the characters. When Marvel wants to do a crossover with DC, they can decide on their own to do it. For us, when we're trying to do a crossover that involves the Ghostbusters and Hasbro characters and Star Trek characters, I'll say it took about a year to convince everybody why this was a good thing. And even then, we had to cheat it a bit and the characters couldn't quite interact with one another. We had to use the zombies versus robots. That was kind of the connective tissue between the whole thing. But it was really a challenge to get them comfortable with the idea of all of these different characters appearing together. Then you get into the weird thing of, this is more of a mundane detail, but like the royalties. You know, how do you pay which licenser for which characters and who gets what percentage? And so all of those things together just really complicated the deal. But I wanted to try to make it happen. And so once that one came about, then it made all the subsequent crossovers where the characters actually did interact that much easier to pull off. And being that you have this ability to do it, are you happy that you were able to pull it off and that you did it? Completely. And just being able to throw the zombies versus robots stuff, which is a wild card story-wise at the best of times, or being able to put those characters into things like Star Trek and Transformers, which typically never do zombie kind of stories. That one was worth the time and the effort put into making it happen because then you get that first one done and then every other one from there becomes that much easier. It's kind of like getting the Transformers license itself. That then makes subsequent licenses that much easier to get because you've proven yourself that you're able to take people's characters and treat them respectfully and do fun things with them and so the next people to come along to trust you with their characters you've also worked on several other comics one of them you wrote was colonized with drew moss who is really up and coming and is involved in a lot of interesting projects that are coming out in the next six months what was it like working with him and really bringing this story out to the world if you look at the stuff that i've written it's pretty apparent what my interests are i've done a book about zombies and robots and I did a book about a robot and then I did a book with zombies and so this one was putting aliens and zombies into the same series. It was just a thing trying to have fun and not tell a heavy story. You never be too heavy handed with anything and I just tried to find a unique spin on the zombie story and it basically started with one scene. I had the scene of the UFO that comes down with his tractor being pulls the guy up into a ship kind of the old stories that everybody always tells like all the people that say they were abducted although in this case you know the aliens mistakenly pull a zombie or a dead body up into their ship and then you know that ray of theirs reanimates the dead and then it sort of goes in wacky directions from there so Drew was just the right guy to do that because he has a nice cartoony bent to his artwork but not too cartoony he can play up the horrific stuff pretty well and hit the more goofy or cartoony stuff really well too now we haven't even touched I would say 80% of your career so far but the final comic I want to talk about is ROM and the Art Revolution comics that have just come out and what's the story behind this entire comic and this entire story and all the tie-ins. So we got Hasbro to sign on for Transformers in 2005, and I think the next day, or something really soon after, my next call to them was, hey, what about ROM? You guys own ROM, don't you? And they said, what the hell's ROM? We don't know. So over the next 10 years, I spent all this time, first of all, letting them 
know that they did in fact own this character because originally they didn't. It was a toy built by Parker Brothers and then they over time acquired Parker Brothers and so they had all these weird old assets they didn't do anything with and so I was trying to convince them that not only was ROM really popular comic back in the day but there'd be an audience for it again today and Hasbro was more and more trying to develop their characters on film like they did with Transformers and so rather than do things like Battleship why not try to exploit things like ROM that are actually characters and have backstory and universe around it so that one took a lot of time too just to untangle who owned what because Parker Brothers and Hasbro owned the toy and they owned mention of the Dire Wraiths but otherwise Marvel created everything for the comic and so there's a lot of legal steps required to really ascertain who owned what and so pretty much at about the point where I thought alright well this is never going to actually happen and I did a series with another alien cyborg in it called Onyx that was right about the time when Hasbro called and said yeah you've got ROM we want to announce it at Comic Con and so go from there and so last July is when we launched the comic and then in the pages of the comic I'd intended to sort of allude to and hint at the fact that maybe there's a bigger universe here maybe there's G.I. Joe in the same universe and subtlety a lot of times in comics goes out the window and so as soon as it was mentioned that we might try to include some of these other characters it became well let's make it a full universe let's make it this big thing that we'll now call Revolution and it will include Transformers and ROM and the Micronauts and G.I. Joe all as part of the same universe and out of that we'll launch Mass and then from there have an entire Hasbro universe of characters to play with in all the books. So what can fans expect going forward with this universe and all these characters and their interactions? The great thing about it is now it allows us to do the same stuff that Marvel or DC does where if there's a character who makes sense to show up in ROM, I had a couple of the G.I. Joe characters show up in ROM for a few issues. It doesn't need to always be the big event thing, but it can just be that it makes sense story-wise. You said Transformers want to have a Micronaut join their team or G.I. Joe brings a Transformer onto their team. They've done in that book. It gives you literally a universe of story potential and different things you can do. There was also or already a lot of similarities in the Transformers backstory and things that we planned to do with ROM anyway where there were things that we could weave together and make even more sense of it. There were some things, there always is, where there's continuities where the next writer comes on and doesn't pay as much attention to everything that the previous writer was doing. Having the universe around you now allows you to find ways to explain all of that and make sense of it and then push it into directions people have never seen before. There were a lot of people that were fans of the ROM comics and Micronauts comics that Marvel did, but they never ever got to see those characters meet up. So now you can give people all that stuff they always hope to see. And so going forward with all this, is that the direction that IDW is planning to continuously expand along with every other licensed product they own? I think they all sort of vary. But the new Ghostbusters title we're doing, we did bring the 2016 movie team into the same book as team from the 80s. But with things like Turtles, that's its own thing. I think crossovers are fun and it's fun to play around with those at times. We'll never get to a point where we try to match everything together at all times. I think that stuff's always best and most interesting to fans when it's used sparingly. So all these different things bring their own needs with them. So you're not going to see us try to cram X-Files and Transformers together or anything like that. But just having all these different things and having licenses that are open to and willing to let us try different things always leads to exciting things. And now you've climbed through the ranks. You entered as the editor-in-chief and now you're the chief creative officer as well as the editor-in-chief. I took on the title of chief creative officer and became an officer in the company a few years ago, but then this past fall handed off the editor-in-chief role to David Hedgecock. So since about September, he's been holding that position. Do you miss it? No, because the one, well, I mean, yeah. The challenge of it all was just both jobs have a lot of needs and they really need time that no longer exists to do them both properly. So I do miss having 
a more direct hand on some of the licensed books, but I really like the way the job has changed in figuring out more of what we're going to publish, who we're going to go after, what kinds of big picture things that the company should be doing. The thing I don't miss is the direct day-to-day schedule concern. That's the editor-in-chief's job, too, on top of everything else, is to keep the books coming out on time, month in and month out. And after doing that for a decade, I don't miss that part of it necessarily. And this leads right into my question. As the chief creative officer of the company, what do you look for when people are trying to submit a book to IDW? It's funny. There's a lot of different factors that weigh in. In fact, we now have an editorial review committee that looks at things from different sides than I do. Once something passes muster there, then they sort of kick it up the ladder to see if it makes sense in the broader sense of things. But you look at the story that creators want to tell, if they seem to have a unique voice, if they're telling something in a different kind of way than you've seen before, if it fits alongside all the other stuff we've done. We end up passing on a lot of superhero projects because the market really wants from people beyond Marvel and DC to any great degree. And then you just look truly at the publishing schedule. Do we have space over the next 12 months or 18 months to even consider this thing? Do we have the manpower to put toward it and make sure that it gets proper marketing and treatment on all sides? And so there's a lot of different factors that weigh in. You talk to the book people and is this a book that you think is going to have any kind of legs outside of just being a comic book? You know, the monthly comic, is it going to sell the trade? Is it going to be a perennial kind of thing? There's all these different factors and sides that uh, go into evaluating, but it all really always comes down to do we like it? Same with license stuff. We never want to take on a license of something we don't necessarily have any passion for if it's just a thing for money because it's not a thing that goes away quickly. You don't sign on for a license and do four issues and then it disappears. It's a thing you're going to live with for years and so it, it's certainly better be something that somebody at the company has passion for because that's what always leads to the best comics. And also people want to get involved in comics either as artists or as writers or editors or in some capacity of the industry. What advice do you have for people who want to become involved? At the root level of it all because every publisher and every company has different ways of breaking in and different needs and every single person to a one has a different story of how they got into the business. I'd say for people that want to get in, it's good to go to conventions, it's good to get talking to people. You don't necessarily need to pitch there but just get to know editors, get to know people that are working the different publishers because then from there you've got those connections and when you do have a story you want to tell or you want to show, you can easily reach out to them and say, hey, can I show you this thing? But beyond that, go make comics. Like Making comics yourself is really the best way to get noticed. The old days used to be you'd throw stuff in a manila envelope, mail it off and hope for the best and hope there'd be a submissions editor that would be sorting through everything. The days of submissions editors who have all day just to look at new stuff are long gone. So that pile of submissions becomes very untenable for editors who are kept so busy throughout the day on just the books they're currently doing. So what really catches people's attention in today's world is when you do a thing and you get it out there and get your friends talking about it, if you look at so many people that are working at Marvel and DC and for us now are people that have either self-published, done stuff at very small publishers, just put stuff up on Tumblr and gotten noticed. The more you can get your stuff seen that way, the better it is, especially for writers because I know how hard it is to get editors to actually read stuff. If you can get a comic drawn, even if it's not drawn the greatest, it's at least an easier read than trying to read a full script. I think making it yourself is a great start because it also shows you what it takes to get a thing finished, shows you how to collaborate with other people, and it just gives you that thing that you can then show around to everybody. And finally, do you have anything you'd like to promote? Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, comics that are coming out, company news, website? I think I'm probably Chris underscore Ryle at most of them, but for the most part, I'd say we put out probably 60 some titles a month, and so I just encourage people who want to check out what we do, just hit the comic shop on any given week, and it's going to be something new and fun there for you. And personally, I'm really having a lot of fun on ROM with Chris Gage and the artists that are working on that, and then about to head out and do a bunch of conventions. So a lot of us 
at IDW will be at conventions throughout the states in the spring and summer. So I'd encourage you to come by, check out our stuff, talk to us, and get to know what we do. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the podcast. And as always, you could find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher Radio, and anywhere else where you listen to your podcasts. And while you wait for next week's episode, you could check us out at popanimecomics.com for articles relating to anime, comics, and pop culture, as well as follow us on Twitter at popanimecomics. And we currently have a Patreon up and running. It's called Pop Anime Comics. You can find us on Patreon. Every dollar helps keep this podcast up and running. So please consider donating. And if you can't donate, I understand completely but write a review on itunes it lets other people know all about our podcast so thank you for listening to this week's episode and as always have a wonderful week and i will see you next week everybody